pseudo-Asian, raging racist, late bloomer. Today on The Pursuit, Dan Hyun. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Dan Hyun. Dan is the founding pastor of the Village Church in Baltimore, started with the dreams of making God famous through a multicultural expression of the kingdom. He's the founder also of the Ethnos Conference to lead the church in conversations about multicultural mission and reconciliation. He serves on the SEND Network, developing urban church planters, and is a requested speaker on the issues of ministry and mission and justice and leadership. But his journey of speaking about racial healing starts with his own story of racial hurting. So Dan, you grew up in Philly and you went to like school in Pennsylvania and everything like that, right? Yeah, most of my life since I was a young kid raised in the greater Philadelphia area. Okay, so I asked Jenny Yang this because she grew up in Philly and lives in Baltimore just like you. If you had to pick a city, Philly or Baltimore? Um, here, So here's the way I'll answer that. If the Eagles and the Ravens ever met in the Super Bowl, I would yeah. obviously be rooting for both, but I would probably be watching quietly in my basement rooting for the Eagles. <laughs> though, though, though ultimately I would not be heartbroken if either team won. But And so what was it like growing up in this suburb of Philly as a Korean American back in the 80s? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> you know, it's my kids, they love to pull out our yearbook, my old yearbooks, and they pulled out my senior year yearbook, which is embarrassing now. But uh, one of the quotes in there that, you know, kind of a, um, a little bit of a cringy thing now, but I wrote in there pseudo Asian. Mm. So, and you know, a lot of my journey and, and what I even try to walk together with people is looking into your past and really trying to see, especially in areas of trauma and growth, yeah. how God has spoken to us. And I, as I look back now, and I think I hadn't fully recognized it then, obviously, but I didn't like being Asian. Mm. I mean, I was Asian and you just can't do anything about it because that's what you look like. Right. But there was a, probably a deep seated shame, um, just a dislike of myself. So I was Asian, but I almost made a joke out of it because I really did not want to be that. I segmented my life into very um, dichotomous I think regions mm-hmm. and and I wanted that. So, you know, church life, that was probably my most Korean aspect of life. And I grew to really value friends I had even in youth group. That was kind of my Korean side. Yeah. If anything, I was pretty whitewashed if we want to use that language though. But yeah. you know, that's where I got my Korean. Um, and in school, um, you know, there were definitely some friends I had and some fantastic folks who there were a few Asian Americans, not too many Koreans, but mainly Chinese Americans. But that was kind of a segment of life that was the more academic, um, science fair, that kind of deal. Uh-huh. But again, there's some shame that I had to fight off. Yeah. I look back, I didn't really want to be part of that crew, sure. even though that was some of my natural tendencies. So I think I rebelled against that, really wanting to press into a non-Asian, which at the time I thought was the more cool crowd. Um, and that's why I probably did things like play football and want to hang out with different people. And I almost associated being Asian as kind of the weaker people into school. Mm. Um, it's it's who I am. I can't deny that, but I don't really want to do it. If anything, I've got to compensate in spite of it. So you had mentioned going to church. What was your faith journey at this point when you were growing up? Yeah, I was actually um, 
<laughs> I was probably a stronger believer when I was younger in some way. So I had, and this is another, a whole nother story later when I got older that I was really far away from God, but I was a mm. good kid. My parents, you know, they raised me in a really good way to, to know Jesus. And um, so even in youth group, very active. I think I was even the president of our youth group at one time and had a real fire for God. So that was a some of my earlier journey, especially before college. So then you go off to Penn State and you take your faith with you, to take your ethnicity with you. How, what was your faith journey and and sort of, uh, you know, ethnic journey there in Penn State? Mm-hmm. And in that way, those two things were together. So probably when I went to school, it was the first time I ever spent all of my time with other Korean Americans and some, okay. some, um, some other Asian Americans, but mainly Korean Americans. I got very involved in the church and the fellowship there. And I loved it, you know, probably for um, the beginning part of my college life. But I think I was going through my own spiritual journey. So depending on the theological acumen of the people I talked to, some people tell me I wasn't saved. I'm I'm pretty sure I had salvation in Christ. <laughs> but again, but that's not a debate worth having. But I fell away really hard. Okay. So it's never that I said I hated God, but I just, I, I think I didn't really understand grace and had a lot of guilt and shame and fear associated with trying to be obedient. So um, when I first went to college, that was my whole relational association with people in church, Asian American fellowships there. Yeah. And I still kept some of that, but I really moved hard because I found some other friends who that wasn't their crew. And I, I really liked that because I think I even felt a deeper sense of belonging uh-huh. with other Korean American dudes who uh, were not the nicest people. Like, in, in terms of like well-behaved, all that, but just who I loved. And that was that was my main group. So mm-hmm. college was probably the time in my life and a whole, you know, a long time of it, six years, where fell pretty hard away from God and got into some pretty destructive behaviors as well, became, yeah, I would still go to church every so often, but really internally, but also externally, pretty far away from God. When you were far, far away from God, what was going through your mind? Like, were you cognizant of the fact that you were far from God? Like, was it a willful decision or was it just not even on the radar? Oh, it was, it was definitely very willful. Um, so for me, I've, I tend to have an extreme personality. So whatever I do, I'm going to go full out. So my goal used to be to be the best Christian and I would try really hard but I think I came to a place where I said, I just can't do this. So, but I can be bad pretty easily. So, um, (laughs) you know, got into some destructive personal habits, um, uh, but also became very violently angry. And I think something I look back on now, I think I had some of that heart, even when we're talking about um, as a younger kid, you know, I was the smiley, I was really shy when I was uh, younger, but really mm. smiley, kind of just happy to be there. And my greatest desire was just to be accepted by larger majority culture, white culture. I just wanted to be that. I didn't want to cause a stir. But I think what I recognized where there was a, a deeper layer of anger and frustration, some of it was at who I was, probably, you know, hating the way I was made and doing every, anything I could to be something different. What I would say is if I were just born white, life would be so much better. But that that creates a sense of anger and frustration. Yeah. And when I went to college then, I think for the first time in my life, I encountered a bunch of guys who are not ashamed to be Korean. If anything, they fully pressed into that. Mm. And if they encountered something on the street, someone making a ching chongy sound or making funny eyes, 
you just knock them out. Like I had never really experienced that before, but I loved it. What do you mean? Like, like, like getting a f- street fight? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> oh, there was a period, like I, <laughs> I feel like we would, you know, just a normal, normal, a uh, few years where just, you get, you get really hammered and then you go out and you get in these fights sometimes with one another, with sometimes with other people that you're at the place with, but oftentimes <laughs> just out, out in the, out in the community and um, I knew it was destructive, but there was a part of it that also felt empowering. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, and it obviously everything's holistic. So it tied into my identity, faith. I, I would still say sure. I loved God, but obviously there was not, there was an internal sense of rebellion from him, but there was also a very external one. But I think only looking back now, I recognize some of the other things that were driving that just a sense yeah. of who I am and and feeling the rage and anger at at being a minority within the larger US and feeling for the first time, well, I'm going to do something about it. Your six years in college, was that basically your your experience all the way through? Some of it. And I think the, some of the reason uh, it was extended was, you know, I just got into some bad life habits. So probably for like a year and a half straight, I think I dropped every semester, had to withdraw, yeah. that kind of thing. But also um, for a good year or so, um, part of this anger led me to obviously ex- express it outwardly, um, especially in violent expressions. And one time I got in a fight and, you know, my thing would begin to fight, run away after that. But after this one, um, someone had actually gotten my information and reported it to police. So I got, I was brought into the police a few days afterwards and actually ended up getting arrested and having to go through a whole kind of court procedures, including getting thrown out of school. So I was out of school for a year. That's, that's some of why things were extended. Yeah. But I mean, that was part of the journey and it was, it was probably the height of my rage and also feeling pretty indestructible. Uh But I look back on it now and I just see the amazing mercy of God that he allowed me to go through those things, not because it was, it was honoring to him, but to kind of wake me up and, you know, shake me out. I was, uh, I had a j- amazing friend who offered me a job with his family's business back in Philly because I was kicked out of school. I had to come back to pack to Philly and I worked pretty hard in a store for a year. And it, w- it was just a good, it wasn't an overnight thing. It wasn't a Saul on Damascus Road moment, but it was pretty drastic in me having to take some inventory of where I was at, where some of my choices were leading me and seeing this is not a path that's going to end well. It's, something's got to change here. So what, what, were you living at home during that time? Yeah, while I was back in Philly, I was living at home and working. What did your parents think of what was going on? They must have been freaking out. Well, they didn't. They didn't really know any of this. <laughs> they, they didn't know you were kicked out of school. That I, I can't remember. I, I just lived a very duplicitous life. I was that kid that used to hide report cards and say, "Yeah, they don't give those things out anymore." I was yeah. that guy. <laughs> so. So, um, you know, I shut, I shut them out of my life, even though I still lived at home and stuff, but they, yeah, they didn't really know. Is your mom going to listen to this and she's going to find out exactly what happened right now? Uh, she might, there need, might need to be some blocking going on. But. <laughs> so when you took that year off, was this a, it was sort of a slowing down for you taking inventory of your life. Was God a part of that? Not, not overtly. So I wasn't very active and again, it wasn't a dramatic come back to Jesus moment, but, yeah. um, it, it was a slower role. And I do remember thinking I need to take some, some action here. So by near closer to the end of college, I started to try to be more active in, in experiencing God through different things. I do remember at the very end of college, I went to 
Yeah, I don't even remember what it's called now, but it was, oh, JAMA. It was oh, <laughs> this yeah. lar- large uh, Korean-American kind of big movement of revival. And I remember going to that at the end of college out in Colorado State. Yeah. And and feeling something, something's different here. And mm. after college, I came back to the Philly area. I was actually in Delaware and starting to go to law school. But a few friends of mine who I'd gone to school with in Penn State, they were back in Philly and they were guys who I had experienced a lot of stuff with, but they had started to get involved with the church. God was doing some good stuff in them as well, start involved in the church in Philly, and they invited me to come out with them. So I started to say, well, I, sh- I should probably do that. You know, yeah. this is a new stage in life. There's This is another chance. So started to go to that church. From Delaware. Yeah, and it's not that far, but, but I, I, and you know, initially it was just to go to kind of do the church thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to church with people I don't know. Uh, I was that guy who would come in probably close to the end of the service just to say I did it. And like when they're collecting offering, I would still slip in and just come in the back and say I went to church. Yeah. But slower and slower, it got to the point where I would, I would come in and I would be that guy that makes the preacher really awkward because he's preaching and I'm just like bawling because that message of grace just really started to grip my heart where I felt like, God, God wants me as well. And again, I think I was saved before then, but it was, um, it, it was uh, coming back to him. So you're in law school. God's doing a work in your life. You're not a lawyer now. So tell me about that. No. Yeah. So I was, um, I, I started to get more involved in the church and what became one evening or one Sunday started to become more and more times coming into the city. And I just started to really, for again, I'm an extreme personality. Um, at a certain point, I started to feel this conviction. I'm supposed to be telling people about Jesus all the time. Yeah. And I totally acknowledge if someone who is in my position now would tell me all this stuff, I would tell them, you are not ready. You need to finish school. You, you <laughs> If you are sincerely called to a lifetime of pastoral ministry, you need more training. You should right. not be going to seminary. Right. Don't do it. But again, with who I am, my pastor did even tell me some of that stuff. I'm like, yo, I'm doing this. So (laughs) a year and a half into law school, I actually dropped out of law school and just started to pursue a path of ministry, including seminary. Um, The thing with my parents were, and this, they're not the typical, my father's past now, but they were not the typical Korean American parents that we would think of stereotypically. They um, they were actually really happy when I dropped out of law school to pursue ministry. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're they're they and I only discovered this about a year ago. My cousins told me they said, "Do you know that during that whole time, your mom would say when you were in some of your worst times, oh, he's going to become a pastor,' and she was praying for that. No way. Which I had no clue about because. Um, that's the funny thing now, if I meet people or reconnect with folks who knew me, you know, decades ago yeah. and they find out I'm a ministry, they're kind of shocked. Um, cause it just didn't seem like the path that would make sense. Sure. I, you know, I dropped out of law school and again, I, if look, if I look back, I would have probably done a little differently, but that's what it was going on at the time. I wasn't fully prepared to go into seminary and ministry. There was a lot of life issues that I still think I hadn't fully processed and it had to lead to a lot of pain. But looking back, it's part of God's, you know, journey for me, even. Th- and I've always had to learn stuff the hard way. And that's the way it's worked. But started to get involved at church, serving on staff, part-time working with young adults. And what kind of church was that? The Old Emmanuel Church in Philly. Um, now it's called Renewal. Okay. Well, this church, um, and that's a whole, you need to do a podcast on that with someone <laughs> else. But this church is actually located right in West Philadelphia. Okay. So it's not in a neighborhood where there's predominantly Koreans. 
But I see. Um, the church was predominantly at that time. Well, there was a whole uh, first generation Korean speaking church, but also an English speaking congregation that started to become a little bit more multi-ethnic. At the time, it's still predominantly Korean American though. So you're in seminary and you're attending this church? Are you serving on staff at this church? I started just by attending, but then things moved pretty quickly, became in leadership. And then once I started seminary, they brought me on in a part-time role okay. to serve and and be part of what was going on there. And what was your role? Um, I, was, I was the young adult pastor of the Young Adult Fellowship. And so again, for me, everything takes long and hard. I was in seminary for five years. I, I would love to say it was because I was faithfully part-time while I was serving full-time in pastoral ministry. And I, I, I was a screw up. I was a scrub. Uh, I messed up so bad in school. I, I love the idea of being in ministry. I, I didn't have the discipline or the character, I think. Again, that's where I would have really pressed hard if I was guiding me at the time, you're not ready for this, but I was in it. Mm. Uh, I remember at a certain point in seminary after my first year, my GPA was so low and I do have some sense of shame. So I'm not going to share how low it was, but it was so low. <laughs> they they brought me in for the talk to say, hey, we love you too much to let you keep doing this. You're not supposed to do this. And I, I, I remember crying saying, I have no other options in life. Wow. Please let me do it and I'll get it better. And by God's grace, he uh, he helped me to slowly slowly turn things around. But that again, that's been a whole part of my journey. I'm not the model that I would hope anyone would follow because it's um, it's kind of a screwed up path. So the seminary was telling you, hey, this is clearly not for you. Yeah, more in just the academics because I, I was doing right. so poorly. And I only, um, you know, some of my journey is in getting more ownership of even my mental health and some of the more self-awareness and, and uh -huh. deeper pains. I think even back then I would have seasons of almost manic kind of like I'm on fire for God. I can do anything. Yeah. But then the other extreme poles were about as low as you can go where I just stop. It's hopeless. It doesn't even matter. Um, and I would just not do what I'm supposed to do. Some of that, I just didn't know what was going on at the time. I probably attributed it more to I'm just spiritually something's wrong with me. Uh -huh. But it led to a destruction in a lot of areas of my life, whether uh, work, school, relationships. And, you know, hindsight is whatever it is, but now I can look back and see, you know, I had to own what I was happening, but at the same time, there were other factors involved. So would you say that there, I mean, you use the word destructive uh, behaviors, but now when it was in college, it was sort of like physically destructive, but in seminary, you're talking about almost like an emotional destruction or spiritual destruction. Was that because you were still processing sort of the deep pains of shame and identity? I think so. And, uh, you know, it's, there's, I think there's so many, it's a multifaceted thing. There's so many different things involved with it. Sure. Um, I think if I would look back on the time now, that is where I received my most significant development in who I am as a, as a pastor. But it was also a season where my idea of what it meant to be a good pastor was this kind of uh, image. And I had to do everything to present that image because I, especially because I didn't feel like I fit that mold. Okay. So it was a lot of external um, image building, trying to keep up certain airs of what what I thought a good faithful pastor in this kind of second generation Korean American model is. And I mean, you've been there. It's yeah. So it's, but then inside feeling, oh, man, I'm not that in every way. Um, and I've got to keep things secret and private and hide. Yeah. And I, I think so a lot of those different factors were involved. So it was destructive. But on the outside, I, I think I was starting to do some 
some okay ministry, really rough. <laughs> yeah, uh, really rough. Um, <laughs> but on the inside, there was still some of that hating myself, not feeling like I knew who I was. So yeah, still processing through all those things. So how long were you at Emmanuel? I was there for a few years and then started coming on staff. I was there till about four years of seminary. And then this is this is another part of it. So the normal path for most of the guys, and you know some of those common friends, is you go through yeah. seminary, you serve at the church, and you're so spiritual. They invite you to come on once you graduate to become part of the staff. I just assumed that would be my path too. <laughs> and I remember my pastor at the time, and he was just, he, he loved me so much, but he's just real straight. He just told me, yeah, we just don't think this is going to work. It's not a fit. Oh, man. Um, I, was, I was crushed. Oh. I was crushed because it, what it did was also brought out all the insecurities I had about myself. And sure. sometimes you think you're fooling yourself, but then you when you hear from other people, you're like, right. oh, okay. Other people see that too. So, right. So, and, and they're hiring your friends. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and just to give, um, just to not to cast blame, I mean, you can't hire everyone. So it's not like, it's not like they were, they probably could have made something work, but they had to choose. Yeah. And I remember just feeling like, feeling such a moron, feeling such a loser. But as I, and I, these are things you can only look back and see that caused me to get on a path where literally right after those um, conversations, we were sending out a new church from there, uh, City Line Church, led by Pastor Steve Kim, who's currently in Virginia. Okay. He was starting a new church that wanted to be a multi-ethnic church in another area of the city. And because of these situations, he asked me, and you know, he's just too nice of a guy. <laughs> he said, hey, do you want to come join me as my staff at this new church? And yeah. my seminary at the time, I was coming to an end there. They approached me about saying, hey, would you, we're looking for a part-time admissions counselor. Would you like to come on? And all of these things worked at the same time to provide this way for me to start to become an adult, be part of this new church that really, I think, stirred up a multi-ethnic vision of what church could be. Because now it's a little bit more in vogue. Back then, there were not too many people doing it. Sure. And it started, starts, and being part of, uh, my school was Biblical Seminary. Now it's called Missio. They were engaging in conversations about what does it look like to do missional ministry in a world that's changing? I'd never heard that kind of language in the churches I was part of. Yeah. And all of those factors working together, man, I'm going to get teary-eyed. I got to be careful here. I look back now. Um, my wife was a student, and at that time we weren't married, obviously. She was a student. She was living in Baltimore, but she was commuting to do this crazy program at the seminary. And in her last uh, year, last few months of school, we finally met. Uh, we never, we didn't know each other. We met. We had some common okay. friends, and you know, now we're married. I ended up moving to Baltimore. All of these things, I look back and say, if things had gone the way that I would have designed and, and right. it wouldn't have looked the way it's happened now. Right. Like I needed almost things to not work out the way I wanted them to for all of these amazing good things I've been able to be part of, including my wife, including the church, including Baltimore. I needed all of these things to fall through the cracks for other things to come out of it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so then you moved to Baltimore. So what do you do? I, I think I just had a higher estimation of myself. I thought I can get any job I want. I, I didn't have anything. So 
um, the first six. How old are you at this point? Uh, I was 34. Okay. So for the first uh, six months or so, it was just miserable. You know, our, our marriage took a hit because of it because I was just depressed. Mm. I actually ended up having to keep some of that part-time job working at the seminary in Philly because I didn't, I couldn't get any work. Yeah. And I, I would like commute back and forth a couple of times a week. Uh, it was just it was just miserable. But what ended up happening eventually, the church that we were both a part of in Baltimore, the pastor there, Roger Kim, tremendous uh, mentor for me, he invited me to come on. He recognized some gifts in me. He said, hey, why don't you come on part time staff at the church? We were meeting downtown in Baltimore and I started to do a little ministry and things move very quickly. He recognized and I look back now, he recognized things in me that I don't think anyone ever has before. Mm. He told me, I think you need to be leading. And I was like, I'm, I'm not yeah. that, you know, no one had ever looked at me as a leader in church. I was kind of like that goofy guy that was, you send the people who need to talk to someone because I'm good at that, <laughs> but I'm I'm not the preacher. Yeah. I, I <laughs> man, you're going to bring out all my trauma here, Rich, but. Come on, let's do it. I, I remember even <laughs> early in ministry back in Philly, I had a pastor who, again, who loved me, who just, and he was trying to be really kind, but told me. You know what, Dan? Not everyone is meant to be a preacher. Oh wow! After one of my sermons, he was trying to be really encouraging. Was it? Was he though? Was he? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> genuinely. That it was. It was. It was for like affirmation, correction, more trying to yeah. be depressed into my gifts, which he thought were like, and I think are still there, like counseling and building community things. But yeah, you know, look at my preaching, and I so I had never seen myself this way. But then uh, once I was in Baltimore, my pastor was like, "Yo, you need to be leading." Yeah. You, so he brought me out. He. Uh, increased me to full time to start leading at the church campus we were at in downtown Baltimore. So it was a multiplying church with a vision to start different churches. What was the name of that church? Grace Life Church. Okay. Um, so I started to lead there, but then very quickly, um, God started to impress upon me a vision. Uh, as great as this is, you need to be going out and starting a new church as well. So probably doing that about a year Things have moved really quickly at that point. We felt this calling to be sent out by the church to start a new church uh, in the city. And that's that's the church we started, the village. And what year was that? Uh, we officially launched in 2008, but then, uh, there was work ahead of that, but uh, 2008. So leading up to this vision to plant the church in downtown Baltimore, what sort of preparation did you have for yourself, for your family, for your leadership team? Well, I look back now, we, we did just, you know, regular core team meetings and preparation yeah. development. But I look back now, it was just terrible because uh, we, and it's not that there were not resources out there, but at the time I just was not aware enough to know what I needed, how to do it. Yeah. So that's why my current work now, I work with uh, church planners in Baltimore. I'm so, um, so adamant about helping guys to try to prepare right. and do things as much as they're able to well, because I feel like I don't didn't do that well. If in any ways it was God's mercy and power and just my bull, stubborn bullheaded grit right. just to like kind of push things through. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if I'm being honest, it's what caused a lot of the pain in the early couple of years of the church plan because I was operating out of brokenness, mm. uh, just sheer determination, but not probably not very wise. And I probably ended up hurting some people in ways that um, that I became aware of. But if I could have gone back and done it differently, but you know, it is what it is. Um, so we were we were just doing a lot of um, building within our team, but also trying to reach out to the city, be involved in large areas. Our our goal was always not to be a church just for ourselves as a church, but a church for the city. What does it look like to become aware of the issues of 
of the larger city, um, especially in areas of justice and mercy? And what would like the church look like to be that city on a hill within Baltimore? So leading up to your church plant, the church in West Philly, the church, City Line Church and Grace Life Church, these are all, you said, multi-ethnic congregations, but they're also all being led by Korean pastors, Korean American pastors. Um, And so was this sort of what you saw as a model for the type of church that you would want? I think so. And um, I think what it started to do for me was open my eyes to the possibility of reaching people beyond just those who share a common um, appearance or ethnicity with you. So Emmanuel Church, even though it was predominantly um, Korean first and second generation English speaking, but it was located in West Philly, which is a community predominantly African-American, African. Um, So the church had to acknowledge because for a long time, people in the community didn't know that it was a church. They just thought it was a (laughs) bunch of Asian people driving in these nice cars to do some stuff. They didn't even know it was a church. So um, God did some, you know, supernatural things to open up doors, even through tragedy, so that the church would engage with the community. So that started to open my eyes. And I was involved in the West Philly um, outreach into the community. For one summer, I even led our uh, camp in the neighborhood. And those things started to stir my attention. I mean, I was was a blatant racist when I was growing up. That was some of my story as well. God started to change some of that. And then City Line Church was intentionally started to be a multi-ethnic church. And this was early in the day. So we didn't know fully what we were doing, but Pastor Steve had a courageous vision. And we saw a community come together, even to this day, that's that's a wonderful mosaic of folks. So that again, was another step of the journey. And then Grace Life Church in Baltimore, uh, even to another level, what does it really mean to be a multi-ethnic dynamic church of different cultures? So, and again, I think you had, like you mentioned, these are diverse communities led by Korean Americans. So I started to believe maybe I can do this. But what I also started to see is um, I wanted to take it to another level and say, you know, multi-ethnic is good. And I use those uh, terms kind of together, but oftentimes it can be people who are pretty similar, even if ethnicity is different, but culturally, including things like class and socioeconomic status. Sure. But start a dream, especially in Baltimore, what would it look like a church to be um, multicultural, bringing together different cultures along with a multi-ethnic representation, but also people, um, you know, who've got degrees, degrees out the wazoo and people who haven't graduated eighth grade, people who are, you know, blue collar, white collar, people who are, you know, all these different things. And that was some of the dreams of what would it look like to be a church to get started like that. But that doesn't happen if I didn't have some of these experiences from others. Um, And I think what it allowed me to do, this is just a little bit more for uniquely for me as a Korean American. I remember when we first started the village, and I cringe when I say this now, but we didn't we we didn't put my name or face anywhere on some of the initial promo or website just because I still had some of that deep shame. Really? As a Korean American, people are not going to come to your church if they're if you're Asian because they're going to think it's a Asian church or a Korean church. And wow. at the time I was driven by the fact we're not going to be a Korean church. We're not going to be an Asian church. And I right. I'm a liability in that. And it just sounds embarrassing saying it out loud now. But that, that's what some of the reality back then was. Wow. Yeah. So God, God has done a good work in me to kind of embrace who I am and that it's not a liability. But if anything, God has been using all the different things in my life, all the stuff that I used to run from. So, yeah. so where I think about multi-ethnic 
church ministry now, pastoral ministry, is I'm, I'm a big advocate of it, and I actually just wrote something about it. So I'm a big uh, believer in a multicultural church. I don't think every church has to be multicultural unless sure. you're just blatantly racist. Right. <laughs> you know that? <laughs> right. Um, because, you know, even for, I talk to a lot of younger Korean guys who are interested in this, I asked them questions that, is this really the right path for you? Because if it's not, there's nothing to be embarrassed about that because everyone right. needs ministry. But for me, because I've always felt in my life, I never fit in anywhere. Mm. Whichever group I was part of, I always felt like, you know, I, I'm a chameleon. I can make it work. But man, I don't really feel like I belong here. Yeah. Where I used to kind of resent that, now I see that's allowed me to lead a more multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation because I have no problem being with almost anyone. Right. And most of the time for them to also feel like I can identify with them. And, and, you know, it's, it's been God's grace to kind of take the things that I've always felt ashamed about and redeem them to see, no, this is actually you being Korean American. You used to think it was something that would prevent these things from happening. Actually, some of what's happening in your ministries because precisely of who you are, right? you know, and don't elevate that to be above anything else, but redeem it just like any other area of who we are. Right. It's a strength, not a weakness. Exactly. Hey, I just wanted to tell you that earlier this year, Dan's brother and his daughter both were diagnosed with leukemia. And this brought to awareness the drastic underrepresentation of Asian Americans in the National Bone Marrow Registry. So I didn't want to tell you Dan's story without also giving you a challenge, regardless of your race, to join the registry and possibly save a life. You can sign up online at join.bethematch.org. And now back to the show. As part of your story, as you've been saying, just leading out of your own brokenness, out of your own insecurities, you know, you're saying you don't want to have your face on the website because of the insecurity that you have about your own self. But yet you're sort of known as someone who talks so openly about reconciliation and about racial justice in the city of Baltimore. And you have an ethnos conference um, that talks about these issues. How did you go from being someone who doesn't want their face to be on the church website to now somebody who's standing up in front of crowds and talking about racial reconciliation? Yeah, I mean, you know, that makes me sound better than I am. I, it's, I probably <laughs> did want my face on all this stuff, but I thought if I did it, I'd be killing the church. <laughs> and so it, it, was, it was all shame and fear. It's... It was ultimately looking at who I thought I was and thinking it's not going to be enough to do what I really want to do. Because some of these visions of reconciliation, that's been in me since um, the way I describe it. So people, you know, have conversation with folks that how do you know the Christian faith is real? How, how do you know these things? And I can give them all the different evidences that I believe are very valid. But ultimately, I come down to my own story where I used to. Uh, legitimately be a raging, angry, violent, racist person. Yeah. And God did something in me. Like, and you know, you can fake some stuff, but like he's taken what was like bitter anger. I hated everyone. I mean, I even hated other Asian people at times, right? I right, hated everyone. Right. And God changed something um, to now where people I used to look at with enmity and 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 bitterness and and rage. Now I'm like, I need to be family with them. Yeah. Even if we have nothing in common, we're we're meant to be family. That's the story of reconciliation. Right. So 
Um, those, those, that, you know, that's what I tell people. That's how I know this thing is real. Cause I know myself, I'm not a good guy. You know, God has intervened in my life to create a supernatural love that I can't produce or fake just cause I think it's a good idea. Like this is something real. So, um, I think for me, it's coming to grips with all the different things you mentioned and encountering some of the different shame that can really, and you know, for Asians, we talk about the shame we have. I think a lot of the shame is diminishing what God can do through us, especially for me. I mean, you know, we're kind of close to the same age. We grew up in a generation yeah. in America. You didn't see any role models that look like you anywhere right. that were doing significant things in America. So the implicit message you start to internalize is, well, I can do some stuff. I mean, I know I can do ministry, but it's only to this level. Right. And I better work within my stay in my lane if we want to use that kind of language. Yeah. And and it just I think shame drives that. So again, it doesn't mean that not doing that is any less, but I also encourage some people that I I look at I'm like, "Yo, you can probably do far more than you've given yourself credit for." Yeah. You are going to be able to impact people that maybe no one else thinks you can. Um, and be self-aware enough to know where you need to grow in that. Yeah. And maybe that you can't do everything, but you can probably do far more than you think. And uh, I think from my story, I've talked about being a late bloomer and I shared some of that with you here. I am not a model of the path to getting to where I want to be, but God has often used my things of brokenness, things where I felt inadequate. Honestly, in humility, I think so much the story of reconciliation, there needs to be humility. We talk about issues of um, kind of even with pl church planning, where it can be a colonial idea of like kind of come in and we're the savior. And I think for me, it's been, you know, I, I need to continually be learning from other people. So even when you're talking about influencing others and being in a position, there's things I've done intentionally to put my voice out there, but a lot of it's just trying to be faithful to what I believe God's called me to do. And then if he wants to give more um, exposure to that, you know, I, I want to just be used in those ways. So and we talked about the conference, Ethnos Conference. We're about to hit the fifth one this spring and, nice. you know, really excited about it. The The real reason we started that back in the day was I, and this is my flesh, but I would look at every conference that people would announce on Twitter or Facebook or the internet and, <laughs> and I would just get mad. And it was my own yeah. stuff. I would just get mad because my first thing is I would go to the speaker list Yeah, and you know, maybe they got, maybe they got Francis in there. Right. But other than that, <laughs> it's like, they got one. Yeah. You're like, yo, you know, I, this is not for me. This is not for right. me. I, I was just mad and it would, again, in my own stuff, I had, I had to learn how to process that. But the way I've always tried to attack or, or approach things when I get mad is, well, I can stay mad or I can do something about it. Let that direct me. I was like, well, forget y'all. I'm going to start my own conference then. Yeah. And that's why from the beginning, we've just made it a very big value that, you know, we're going to get some folks that you anyone's going to recognize nationally, but we're also going to we're going to try to empower voices across the spectrum of yeah. men and women of different experiences and obviously different ethnicities who might not be represented in the normal conference in the evangelical world, at least in what we can control. We're going to try to do that. Yeah. I mean, one year you invited me to do a breakout. So you were reaching deep, man. You were <laughs> really reaching down. No, you killed it, man. <laughs> we got so much good feedback from that. That was epic. Who are some of the models that you looked up to as you're leading into this racial justice and racial reconciliation space as a Korean American? Yeah. Um, I think it's probably some of the more prominent people who, especially when we were starting the village, 
uh, we were we were looking towards. And, you know, at the time, they might not have even been as prominent um, now. Yeah. But for me, they were because they were Korean-American people like Sun Chan-ra and sure. Eugene Cho. Yeah. Chinese, Chinese-American, but like Ken Fong, yeah. other people like that, that I, Dave Gibbons. Mm-hmm. And then people I knew a little bit more closely, uh, people like... Uh, Young Kim, Min Chong, Steve Kim, people like that yeah. uh, encouraged me to kind of pursue this. But at the same time, and I th- this is not to make it sound like it's more elevated or better, but I felt some of our experience in Baltimore was just a little different even than some of those voices talked about. Totally. Just because some of these issues, especially when it comes to the poor, the, um, my experience is it's really, it's, it's not easy. Nothing's easy, but it's a little kind of what you're talking about. We can lead multi-ethnic churches and it it creates a little bit more of an ease of doing that when everyone's kind of on the same page uh, financially, place in life. Right. Um, my desire was even when we start a church and as I'm raising up pastors and planters now, I'm like, if we're really going to do this right, you're going to have to die to what it looks like to be a good preacher or consider a good preacher among some of our tribes huh. that value like a really academic, like in the yeah. sky. I'm like, if we're reaching people with, I mean, you know, honestly, like reading level, that comprehension that might not be there. Yeah, you can sound real impressive to some folks, yeah. but you're going to be totally missing ministry. And those are things I think the big lessons that hopefully I try to pass on to others. And it's so... I've gotten critique on my preaching before, uh, not as much now, but earlier on, yeah. I've gotten critique in some of us because I just was bad and I had to learn. But others, other parts of it was, it's like, you're not, it's not really like reformed or not very mm. gospel centered or, you know, whatever that means. So I, I try to make really clear. It's not that, I mean, I've been to seminary. <laughs> I, I, I've been, I know I can put together a three point sermon the way we're supposed to. I, I, I'm not saying I would do it well, but I know how to do that. <laughs> but there's intention because our bigger goal, goal that we're, that we're uh, striving for is to make disciples, to reach those outside of the bounds that we might normally be. If that's going to be the case, I got to die to some myself. Yeah. I got to die to some of my own ideas of what it is. Again, never compromising the truth or orthodoxy but being in a place so that more and more people can hear about who Jesus is. One of the things that I've been thinking about was just sort of this generational moment. And I looked to my father who immigrated here um, as a single person um, and got married here, but the opportunity for him to assimilate to American culture was sort of impossible, right? My parents are not assimilated to American culture in the same way that my son is, mm-hmm. but that's the that's the burden of the first generation. The assimilation is impossible. And then when I look at my son and my daughter, it, assimilation, it's still hard, But in some ways, the way society is moving, assimilation for them is sort of inevitable Mm -hmm. um, in that the way that they are being uh, looked at in society compared to my father is vastly different world. They are, you know, in the schools and having friends and things like that in the community that are that look very different than what the social structure would look like for my parents in the 1960s and 1970s. But I think specifically of our generation, you, me, and people that are our age, that really had to bridge that assimilation pathway, mm-hmm. going from some one generation who assimilation was inevit- impossible, and within just two generations, really seeing sort of assimilation as inevitable, but as, a, as this specific generation really needing to bridge all of that and having to you know navigate through all of that 
I don't really have fully formed thoughts around that, but mm-hmm. just uh, it's just something that I've been thinking about. I think about what a unique generation you and I belong to in that we had to bridge this gap. Yeah, man, that's that's real right there. And I don't, you know, we, I, we talk a lot about self-awareness and even past trauma and stuff. And I think yeah. only even in the past few years, I'm really starting to dig into some of that. Yeah. Because I think some of, you know, not, not to over elevate, but some of what guys like you and others we know, like us, we've had to uh, internalize a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. We've had to kind of just grit. Yeah. People can argue all day about systemic injustice. And right. the reality is... Things are just not in our generation. We're not just easily set for us to just be like every larger majority culture, and it'll just happen if you do the right things. Right. You've got to almost have an extra thing. You've got to have someone who advocates for you. Yeah. And my hope for younger generations that that will not be as hard. And that's one of the reasons I tried. You know, my wife probably more than anyone like, man, you post a lot of stuff, or you you out there a lot. <laughs> There's a part of me that you know, and this brings in our whole Korean kind of like self whatever stuff like don't be arrogant don't don't talk about yourself and i wrestle with that and i think honestly i think western culture could learn some of that a little bit more but i think the reason why i put myself out there is not just for me to put my stuff out there but for other people who are watching and who are following and maybe even dreaming to say okay um i'm not alone in this yeah you know i'm not alone in this this is possible but what I also, the reason I put it out there, and some people think I over-racialize stuff or over-talk about things, I think it's to recognize, yeah, things look like there's much more opportunity. And there is, you know, it's it's amazing. Right. Even as an Asian American, there's so much more opportunity. We see even larger organizations bringing on leadership. So it's not just token, but let's not just accept that because even that can hit a certain level mm. that the larger culture is comfortable with. And let's not just tolerate being accepted and given something and say, okay, well, you're in now if it's not engaging in deeper issues. Or, well, why are not more in? It's almost like to be a minority, you got to, in majority culture, you got to be extraordinary to make it. And we can highlight those people and we love it and it's exciting. But yo, that should become more normal for folks. A hundred percent. Who are, who are excellent. You know, so that's why I continue to talk about this stuff because I'll just be real, real right now. If it's just about me, I'm kind of good. I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I've got my space, I'm doing stuff, but I'm always thinking about those who are coming behind me now. And I yeah. want to make the pathway for them a little less bumpy than it might have to be if I have any control over that. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that's why I started the podcast. Yeah. I love what you're doing, man. It, this is, this is exactly what we need. You've got platform. Uh, platform, it can be bad, but I think it's a real good thing if we're trying to raise up others that people may not even be aware of. I mean, I love what you're doing. You know, it's funny that you talk about that the need for that minority to be exceedingly exceptional. Um, and I was having a conversation with my friend, and we were talking about Parasite, and we were talking about what a landmark uh, award it was for, you know, the film industry, for the, you know, uh, international feature films. But at the same time, we were sort of lamenting the fact that Parasite had to be almost a perfect movie for it to be even considered, for it to be an upset, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it wasn't even the favorite. You know, just to think about how many other movies out there that are international movies that are good, that are great, but that aren't even being considered because for that international film to be considered, it has to be 
so much better, exceedingly better than any other American film. And it's in the same way, sort of like generationally, um, you know, like you look at the generation ahead of us, um, the Francis Chans, the Eugene Cho, Sun Chan Ra's, like you have to have such a, such a skill, such a mind to be able to be on that platform in the, on the stage that you and I, I think as we look to the future generations, we say, well, we just hope that that won't be the case in the future, that you don't have to be exceedingly exceptional and over and above, you know, anybody who's majority culture. And man, we get into some deep stuff, you know, so as I think about <laughs> our, our church, and I think I told you about when we started to take, make a turn and more Asian Americans started to come to the church. This is embarrassing to say now, but at the beginning, I, I found an inner rebelling against that. Mm. I almost started to get concerned. Yeah. Like, what what if too many Asians come? What if we start to become an Asian church? And yeah, man, that's been a whole good process. Because for a while there, I think in trying to pursue this kind of more multicultural, again, which I fully affirm and I think is, yeah. is really good. I almost felt like I had to um, diminish who I was, including who I was around. So I, I stopped going to Korean conferences, retreats. I, 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 you know, I just wouldn't accept those kind of things. Yeah. I was like, I've got to be in other spaces. And what had happened was I realized one of my idols was I felt like this made me stand out by leading a church that was not predominantly Asian American. Right. Like this is, this makes me more impressive or better, or gives me a better sense of worth. And God just had to like draw that out of me and, and lead me to repentance to say, yo, you are highlighting the wrong things. This is still your shame speaking. Mm. And ultimately, you know, now again, our church has grown and thankfully it's not just growing Asian Americans, but it's growing others, but there's a lot more Asian Americans. Yeah. But I celebrate that now. Right. The way, way I would think of it is Asians are one of the only people who ever say things like, I oh, mean, I think we're becoming too Asian. A hundred percent. No, no, no other uh, group says that. Yeah. Uh, like we're, maybe white people, but that's different. Right. But no other minority <laughs> group says we are becoming too Asian. That's a problem. A hundred percent. Yo, um, yeah, I mean, if it's like because there's stuff that we could do better, sure, let's address it. But right. let's not be ashamed of who's coming because there are people who need to also hear this message. I think about, you know, I love every person who comes to our church. I think about the young Asian dude, maybe in college, really kind of timid and meek when they're around the larger populations. But you know that guy, like when they're with right. other Koreans, they're like the life of the party, gregarious, yep. they're fun. To, but then they like mouse up when it comes to being amongst others. Yeah, Like I want them to see in me and not, again, I'm pointing to Christ ultimately, but as I represent Christ, yeah. see someone who looks a little bit like them leading peoples and not just Asian peoples, but leading other peoples. And 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 because you know representation does matter, especially in leadership yes. and authority, and not just as tokens, but actual leadership. I'm thinking about that young dude to say, dude, you can lead in every sphere of your life, and who you are is not an impediment. It's not in the yeah. way of anything. If you bring that to God, He's going to use that to make you even a better you. You're no better than anyone else, but you're no worse. years, when Dan was a young man, he didn't quite know who he was and how he fit in the society. But through the journey that God put him on, he's found out who he is and how he fits. And a large part of that is helping others find out who they are and how they fit. And that is a great story of reconciliation and healing. If you'd like to follow Dan and his many posts, you can find him on Instagram at danhyun one 
and Twitter at Village Dan Hyun. And if you're interested in attending the Ethnos Conference, they were postponed this year because 2020, but you can stay up to date at ethnosbaltimore.org. Thanks for listening and subscribing to The Pursuit. Would you do me a favor and just turn to the person next to you right now and just tell them, yo, you gotta listen to this. Thanks for always helping me get the word out. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. And yet never invited back. Oh, <laughs> yo! So these, this is this is so this is your kingdom mentality that I'm inviting into, Rich. That you are giving space for someone else. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Given. <laughs>